listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. In this series, The Gospel of Luke, Jesus for All, we walk through Luke's account of the life and ministry of Christ. Good morning, everybody. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke chapter 8. We're going to continue our study through the book of Luke. And we're in this section of Luke where there's miracle after miracle after miracle. If you had a wonderful um, time, it was absolutely a wonderful time last Sunday um, down at Second Baptist as um, we combined uh, congregations and and um, just like there was so many interesting comments from those from Second, just like the singing, like we've never heard singing like that, which is just wonderful. That warms my heart and everything. And um, so we've been looking at, at the book of Luke, and last week we looked through, looked at Jesus sitting in the boat, and, um, and the storm comes up, and the disciples are flipping out because the boat's taking on water, and Jesus stands up and he calms the storms and calms the waves. And he had this one question that he asked, and that's kind of what we focused on last week, was where is your faith? That faith is not just something that turns on automatic, kind of like a thermostat, um, but it is something that we must exercise. And so we're in the middle of this section that, that really has, it has a couple different themes to it, so to speak. It, it has the theme of faith. We see faith coming up over and over again. We see Jesus' authority. Um, but really, it is all culminated here in chapter 9, verse 20, and it is what it is to be teaching us also, and that is Peter saying this, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, the Christ, our God. So yes, the, the miracles are, are teaching us about salvation, teaching us about faith, but they're also showing us and teaching us time after time that Jesus is God, that He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the one that He says He is. In fact, all Luke is really doing, if we think back to chapter 4, is He is he is showing us that Jesus is doing exactly what He said He was going to do. And I know it's been several months, actually, since we've been in Luke 4, so let me just read that to remind you of what Jesus said. And the scroll of the prophet, this is Luke four seventeen through 21. Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So now Luke is showing us that Jesus is going to do exactly what he says he came to do. That the scripture has been fulfilled in him. He's proclaiming liberty to the captives. Healing those who are sick, which we will look at next week. And complete salvation, which is salvation over death itself, which we will also see next week in the combined two miracles that we will look at. See, we see each of these represented in the next three miracles that we will look at. We see him delivering the captives, which again we will see and unpack today with the man has many demons. He's demon possessed. Um, so, all of this, in essence, really begs the question for all of us to ask as we are listening today 
As there is not a, a two-step, three-step plan to do afterwards. Um, there's, there's no like big to-do thing here. It's, it's more about believing. But believing what? Realizing and seeing Christ for who He is. And maybe asking this question. What has He done for you? What has He done for you? Because that really determines... Like, the reason why that we gather together and, and we worship is because we do realize what He has done for us. We, we do realize where we have been and where He has, has gotten us to and where we are going. So what has He done for you? So after Jesus calms the storm, we pick up Luke's account in Luke 8, verse 26. And it says this, Then they sailed to the country of um, Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. So here they, they sail across the sea, and Jesus gets out of the boat, and someone meets him there. This man is, is not right. <laughs> I mean, first of all, he's naked. That, that should give you a clue, right? And uh, so he, he meets him right there as soon as he gets off the boat because really what's compelling him, what's controlling him, and I know Nate's alluded this many times already this morning, but what is controlling him is the demons. And the demons don't like Jesus. The demons know exactly what Jesus means for them, which we're going to see coming up here in a little bit. So the man meets him there. He's naked. He's you know, obviously not bathed. He's full of mud. He's living in, in tombs. He's living among the dead. He was alone. His antisocial behavior having alienated him from society and left him completely isolated. The man was also dangerous. Luke does not really mention this, but every time we see a, an instance in the Gospels, it's good sometimes as we're reading to go back and look at the different places that it is in the Gospels. Sometimes that helps us, and sometimes we really got to understand why the purpose of the author is writing things. But here, this is just a simple um, little detail that, that um, actually Matthew adds to it. And, and he says in, in Matthew eight twenty eight, so that the man was so fierce that no one could pass that way. In other words, no one would even go near there. This man would come and, and, and maybe even attack them or, or just because he's running around naked too. <laughs> um, he would scare people away. But see, this man, this man was possessed by demons. Not just one demon, but many demons. We must not take the mis- make the mistake in thinking that what the gospel writers call demon possession is just their kind of misconception of mental illness. I don't think that that is the case. I mean, maybe humans have said that and mixed it up over years, but I don't think that the Bible and the Gospels mix it up. In, in fact, if you look, it, it's been separated in other places in the Bible. In Matthew 4.24 it says, So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics. He healed them all. So the Bible is separating them. We can't just say, oh, well, we're, we're in the scientific age and we know so much more, which we do. Thank God that God has given us the grace to know these things. But we can't just look at this and say, oh, demon possession, we can kick that out of our, our worldview just simply because everybody thought everything that was wrong with people back then was demon possession. 
Unfortunately, today, many people think that everything is wrong is demon possession and don't even require people to take the responsibility for their own sin. That's, that's a side flushing out of all of that. But I think that the Gospels are honest in, in writing that they, they do separate it, and so they're not putting every category under demon possession. The point is both the Gospel writers and Jesus understood there was paralysis, madness, and disease that had a demonic base and a kind that did not. They even write it in. So we can't just put them in that one category. In other words, Jesus Christ did not believe in demon possession out of ignorance, but out of conviction. He believed it out of conviction. The man that Jesus met there was in nearly the worst condition that anyone could imagine. He was isolated from everybody. I mean, this man didn't choose this. He was naked. He probably scavenging for whatever food that he could. He lived among the tombs, which is among those that are dead. I mean, so that definitely makes him unclean to any Jewish person. He was naked, lonely, and violent. He was walking among the dead because he was possessed by demons. Yet even for all his misery, we can see ourselves in his situation. We see ourselves in this situation because that is how sin had us before Christ came into our life. That's exactly how sin had us before Christ, before the gospel came into our life. It exposed us naked in our guilt because we would live with this guilt and try to, try to dampen it, try to cover it up with the things of this world. It alienates us from one another leaving us lonely and alone. It makes us violent. It leads, at least in our attitudes. I mean, it's amazing, like, when, when you hear people, and, you, and I know, and, you, and I know that you know that you can't just say this because then, then, uh, then people will, will just kind of laugh you off, but whenever people are spewing out hate on whatever platform they may have, and, and, and we're looking at it like, well, they can't help themselves because they don't know Christ. The Spirit hasn't changed their heart. And this is who they are. But I know that everybody else doesn't want to hear that. And I know you know that too. But you know what? That was us before Christ changed our hearts. And, and sometimes, I know sometimes I'm like, what did you just do, Soikis? Sometimes I'm thinking like, what, what are you doing? We still have that wrestling. We still have working on our sanctification. Just thus, the madman in the graveyard shows the wretchedness of our condition outside of Christ. He shows us. this. When you look at this picture, he's showing us what we are like outside of Christ. And I, I know the, the general context is that all throughout this country is, oh, we're good people. We just, we just need a little help here, and we need a little help there, and we make these mistakes. But no, that's not what the Bible says. We believe the Bible. This man shows us just how wretched maybe we were, we are, we were before Christ. As Sam reminded us, we were completely enslaved to sin outside of being in Christ. It controlled us much like the demons are controlling this man. It controlled us. It guided us. We, Ephesians even says that we are of the Father, Satan, right? We, we are under that dominion. 
And we see next that the demons were not happy about seeing Jesus. They weren't happy about seeing him. That's why they met him right there when he got off the boat. You know, sometimes we're not happy to see Jesus either. Like, he, we know that he's going to point out and see things in us that, that, that we're, we're holding on to, the, the idols that, that we're worshiping, the things that we cling to so much, and he's going to point them out. And sometimes we don't want to have light shed on that either. But this is the wonderful good news. Is yeah, we can look at this passage and we can see what we were in Christ. I mean, without Christ. But we also need to be reminded who we are in Christ. That, that we are His child. That we have a new spirit dwelt in us. We have a new heart. We've been freed from sin. He has done that for us. That's such good news. That is such good news. But again, these demons were not very happy in seeing Jesus. They were not very happy at all. Just like many who love sin, they don't want to see Jesus either. They kind of even reject us when we're trying to shine the light or be the salt of the earth. And we see this in, in Luke 28, uh, in verses 28 and 29. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. I can't imagine what this man is going through. I can't imagine what's happening here. But these demons, they... They were really, really upset that Jesus showed up on the scene. They were like, please don't torment me. The demons knew that Jesus is the Son of God. They believed in Him. James 2.19 says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And we see them shuddering right here. Like, Jesus has shown up on the scene. His, His powerful, holy presence is among them. And they are shuddering with fear. Please do not torment us. They have the right fear of him because he is holy and they are not. Luke, Luke continues in, in verse 30. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. And that's a big key. It's like they know where they're going. They know their end. They know who Jesus is and what he represents. And, and it's all laid out in this account for us. They know what their end is. That's why they're shuddering in fear. Our fear before the Lord is not that shuddering fear. Our fear is an awe of who he is. It's an awe of who he is. David Gooding rightly describes the madman in the gospel as an extreme example of what satanic forces can do with a human personality that has come under the complete domination. Unlike the Holy Spirit, now he's going to compare us to see, okay, this is what the madman was like because of, of, of the demons that was in him, but the Holy Spirit has freed us. Unlike the Holy Spirit who always sets a man free, develops his personality and increases his self-control and dignity. Satanic forces seem to strive to overpower a man's personality 
and ultimately to break down his self-control and to rob him of self-respect. So in other words, if you think about this, demon possession or even sin, right, it takes you away from truly being who you are. And then whenever you are in Christ, whenever you are born again, now God puts you on a path to truly make you who you truly are before him, a child. That's pretty remarkable. That the Holy Spirit frees us up. Allows us to be who we truly are made to be. Because remember, if you go back to the garden, there was no sin. and We were made to be a certain way, and he is working us to that again. Again, this is what sin does to all of us. Even if our own situation seems less extreme than this man here. Sin does this to all of us. I mean, the Bible tells us. It lays us out. You know, before we are in Christ, the Bible tells us that the sinful mind is hostile to God. Hostile to God. It describes us as dead in trespasses and sin. It says to apart, uh, that apart from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, we are alienated and hostile in mind. This is describing us before we've been saved. Worst of all, we, we cannot save ourselves. Just like this man. You think this, like, this man wanted to be this way? No. He couldn't have just changed things. He couldn't just do anything. He needed Christ and the power of Christ and the authority of Christ to do something for him. And that is the same way we are whenever we're in our sin. We must have Christ to change us. We must have Christ to, to act upon us through his gospel and his word and his spirit. We cannot change, save ourselves just like this man cannot save himself. This is all because the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from the seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. The same thing that broke the chains for this man will break the chains for us and has broken the chains for us. Nothing but the gospel. It's the good news of what Christ has done for us that breaks those chains. It's the good news that, that takes us from dark into light. It's the good news of what Christ has done. I mean, we can, as we read this, like we can smell the fear of these demons in the way they pleaded with Jesus, just absolutely petrified. Do we, in any part of our life, have that much awe for God? Realistically, compared to, to everything else in our life? Do we realistically stand before Him knowing that He is the creator of everything? So I sometimes wonder if, if, if like so many things in my life I have up here, then and He comes in just a little bit lower, right? Like I'm in more awe of some other things over here than, than He these demons were not. They, they were petrified. They knew exactly who they were, they were dealing with. In fact, they, again, they begged him not to torment them. They begged him not to command them to depart into the bit, abyss. That was verse 31. The abyss, as the demons called it, is the place of the dead. We can see that in Romans 10.7. What Revelation describes as the bottomless pit where Satan will be condemned. They, they already knew their end. 
They're standing before Jesus, and his disciples are still trying to figure out, is this the, is this the Son of God? Is, is this the Messiah? Is he truly who he says he is? But these demons are saying, man, I know who you are, and I know my end. Please don't send us there now. That's pretty remarkable. The demons knew their final doom. They know that Jesus will defeat them. They know that they will be cast into a terrible place of everlasting torment. And say that, so they tremble with fear. See, some people may not believe in hell, but the demons certainly do. We should believe in hell, too, and repent before it's too late for us, as it already is for them. I could not help as I've been working on this sermon and and then I spent time with 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 Harry in his in his last moments on on this side of of glory. Um as as I'm working through both things and and, and looking at this, I I couldn't help to have my faith strengthened. Because, you know, a lot of what, what was said um for Harry's funeral and a lot of what I was reminding the family and trying to, to help the family to walk through was this hope, this hope of the resurrection, the hope that Harry believed in and, and absolutely lived by. And, and I couldn't be helped to be strengthened that, that here we see an account, which I think is an eyewitness account, right? That's, that's how Luke is doing this. He, he actually talked to somebody. It's not like they had an end and, okay, now we're going to write these things into it. Because I know so many secular people think that that's how the Bible was put together. But it, but it was not done that way. It was, it was done by God. And, and so Luke went and, and he got all these eyewitnesses. So someone's telling the story and all these different interactions that actually happened. And here within this eyewitness account, they said, okay, these, this man who was possessed by demons knew who Jesus was. And he also knew where they were going. He, they knew about the abyss. You know, the, the parts of Revelation that we just sit, argue about all the time. But at least we know this. They knew about that. And I don't know, for me, it strengthened my faith. It's like here are eyewitnesses talking to evil spirits that actually knew about Jesus and knew where they were going. So whenever we read that we are children of God, that he is making a home for us, that he's making a way to get us there, that he's going to come, he's going to make sure that we get there with him. Man, that just strengthened my faith so much. I hope seeing those things would strengthen your faith today. If the demons know what is going to happen, then we should have just as much confidence to know what is going to happen. And we should. We should know that that's, that's the way you can live your life. And, and yes, although the, the fear of death will, will never go away, but we can, we can walk in such a way that we know death is just, just a shadow. We just pass through the shadow because of Christ, because what he has done for us, because he went to the cross and he died for us and took the wrath for us. We just pass through the shadow. If the demons know what's going on, then we, his children, should even have more confidence to know what will happen. They know their, their final fate. Jesus did not send them to the abyss. But he did do something quite odd, <laughs> did he not? 
We read in verses 32, Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Now, talk about taking a little instance, and they spilt so much ink about this and so much speculation about all these different things and, and what it means and, and some people are upset with Jesus and this, that, and the other. And I, I'm, I'm not going to go into all those different discussions. Uh, there's just kind of two things I want us to see here that I think is important. One of them that some of you may have already picked up on is that Jesus, remember that Luke is writing a gospel for all people. Well, it's quite obvious if, if there are pig farmers there and there's a man running around naked and different things that they're probably in Gentile land right now. They're not in Jewish occupied land. They're in Gentile land. So we see the gospel going out to, to all people. So that's one thing that we know about that. And second, did, Jesus didn't destroy the pigs. The demons did. Right? He, didn't, he didn't destroy the pigs. The demons destroyed the pigs. They're the ones that ran off the cliff. What happened after that? Oh, then you can, you can have another three or four books um, happen there uh, as far as trying to figure out what happened to the demons after they went off. We're not told that. So we're going to keep moving. Uh, the bottom line is the pigs lived and died for the glory of God, right? The pigs lived and died for the glory of God. Um, so we'll, we'll leave it there. What is more important is the way people responded to this. Extraordinary exorcism. I mean, the way they responded was is as important as the miracle itself. You know, and and I know that, that like we read these things, and okay, Jesus is, is just exercised demons out, and we we think of our movies, and it's just really hard for us to to grapple with this, and 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 maybe you can see that it's even hard to even you know talk about this from from up here. Because it's like it's not something that like how many if, I, if if we all raised our hands how many of you have you know experienced an exorcism and, and maybe some of you have but probably not so it's kind of hard to make that connection sometimes but the power of Christ the miracle that happened here but we also Luke records how these people responded and I think we can learn something from how they responded as well. We see a clear contrast between the farmers, those from the village that came out, that owned these pigs, and the madman that Jesus saved. Both of them went away and told other people what had happened. But only one man did this for the glory of God. The others went and said different things. Luke begins with the farmers. We pick this up in verse 34. When the herdsmen saw that what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Now you got to remember, these guys were responsible for all these pigs. And now they're all gone. So they're like, oh, well, they're going to hang us or do something to us because we just lost their livelihood. We did, they just lost you know, all their, their money. Then people went out to see what had happened. And, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Wow. So think about this. These people have lived with this man for a while. They were afraid of this man because his, his great strength, because of the demons, he's you know, running around and, and doing all these different things. But they were afraid of Jesus. They were afraid of Jesus whenever the man was sitting there in his right mind. It's quite interesting. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man 
had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of um, Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. Again, it's not every day that a demon-possessed men find religion or that pigs commit mass suicide. So the word spread quickly, right? They, didn't, they couldn't get on Twitter and tweet it out, but it spread quickly. People wanted to come and see what, what had happened, and soon Jesus was confronted by an angry mob. Now, you would think that, the, the, I guess they're angry, you know, I mean, you think about why they're angry on the front end. All oh, their pigs are gone, and this is probably, you know, the, their, their money and, and their livelihood, and, and I could see that on, on one instance, but they're missing Jesus, right? They're missing his authority, they're missing who he is, what he has done, and what, he's, what he could do for them. And they're just missing it. They were amazed that they could find the crazy man who used to scare people sitting there with Jesus, but they are still very upset. Very upset. But it begs the question, what price can we put on a human soul? Like, yes, they're upset. They're, you know, they're, their pigs are now in the ocean. It could be their, their, their money for years or what have you. But what price are we willing to put on a human soul? Here, this man that was demon-possessed that ran around, he was sitting beside them clothed in his right mind. And this obvious lady knew that Jesus did something because all the people told him what Jesus did. But what price can you put on a human soul? Not just a human soul, but a life transformed by Jesus Christ. That kind of really challenges us, doesn't it? Where are our priorities? What do we really value? Are we more concerned about getting our work done or about taking time for people who need to know Christ? Are we willing to give up what we own to support gospel work with sacrificial giving so that others can come into the possession of salvation? You stop and think about that. Are we willing to do so? Is, is, it, is that more important in our life than, than some of the things that we hold so dear? These people saw that Jesus did and saw the change in the man and they were afraid. They rejected Jesus. They see, it may seem irrational, but yet it often happens, does it not? People have a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ by transforming work of the Holy Spirit. They turn away from their sins and receive the free gift of eternal life placing their own personal trust in death and resurrection of Christ. The change is so dramatic that everyone knows it has to be the work of God. Like That's not the same person I knew six months ago or whatever it was. They know that God has done something with this person. Yet sometimes the friends and family members who ought to be rejoicing respond instead with ridicule and rejection. I'm, I would imagine that every one of us is probably experienced that on some level. Maybe even in your own life. Maybe not something as, as radical as this man's gone through, but we've all been changed. We've all been born again. 
And I know I'm not the same Joe that, that even Charity married. I guarantee you that much. And I'm sure every one of us, to some degree, are not the same person after Christ changed our hearts. But even though people see that in us, they still want nothing to do. They love their sin. They're in bondage of their sin. People sometimes even seem frightened to see someone read the Bible or go to church or stop talking about, to start talking about spiritual things. Deep down, what they are really afraid to confront is their own need of a Savior. That's what they're, they're afraid to confront is their own need for a Savior. They're close enough to see who Jesus is and what He can do, but they still reject Him. Instead of being open to consider the changes that God wants to make in their own lives, they find it much easier to send Jesus away. Go away from us, Jesus. But we see on the flip side, the man that that was changed by Jesus, he wanted to go with Jesus. He's like, you changed me. I'm not staying here. I'm out of here. I don't want to go with you. We read in verses 38 and 39, the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home. Now he's going to have a a purpose. And you know what? This purpose here is the same purpose he gives us because he saves us and then he sends us out. Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Notice all the things that Jesus did for this man. Luke describes him as the man from whom the demons had gone. So Jesus delivered him from the demons. His evil spirits were gone. He was no longer oppressed and possessed by fallen angels. Jesus Christ was in control of his life. And wherever Jesus takes control, there is freedom from Satan. There is freedom from sin. The man was sitting at the feet of Jesus. Jesus had calmed the restless storm that raged inside his soul. And now he was able to sit quietly and listen to careful instruction. No longer alone and isolated, he had a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. He responds by wanting to go with Jesus. This is the response we have come to know in the book of Luke, is it not? Those that have have come in the path of Christ and Christ has done things for them, they want to go with him. They're following him. This is the path that we've seen over and over again. But Jesus had a different plan for this man. He is to go back home and tell all that God has done for him. He's, again, no different than us. Anyone who has come to Jesus in faith has a wonderful story to tell. Each one of us have our own story. That's why Peter tells us that we should have an account for the hope that we have. The details are always a little different, but the story is still the same. Jesus is the hero. He's the center of it. It's not about what I did to save myself. It's about what Christ did to save me. God has forgiven all our sins, even the ones we try to cover and hide. They're all forgiven. He has done this through the cross, where Jesus died for our sins, in an empty tomb where Jesus was raised to give us eternal life. See, God has covered us with the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that we are no longer naked in our guilt. 
He has put us into our right mind so that we know who we really are and who God really is. He has settled us, settled us down to listen to his word. He's actually opened our eyes so we can understand the word. He has given us a saving relationship with his son. This is how much Jesus has done for us, even if we sometimes forget. If this is what Jesus has done for us, then we need to tell people about it so that he can do the same thing for them. So I leave you with the same question I started with. What has God done for you? Can we pray? Father, I thank you that you have sent your son to free us, just like you freed this man. Father, your word is clear that each one of us, before we were in Christ, were enslaved to sin. And Lord, we give you praise and glory that you have freed us from that. You have freed us from that. And Lord, just like we're just like Harry is experiencing right now. One day our faith will be sight. We will see him face to face. Lord, I pray that each one here knows you in this way. Lord, I pray that each one here values you so much and loves you so much for what you have done for all of us. Lord, I also pray if if there's one here that does not know you like that. Lord, that your spirit will change their heart and they can turn from trusting in themselves and trust in you fully. Just as this man did. Lord, I pray that you would help us to do so. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. To learn more about our church, visit our website at mountaincty.church. Thanks again, and may the Lord bless your week.